In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number one, Watergate. When a failed break-in to the Democratic National Committee headquarters and subsequent cover-up led Richard Nixon to become the first president in American history to resign the office. June 17, 1972, 1.47 a.m., Police received a call from a frantic security guard down at Washington, D.C.'s Watergate complex. He was convinced there was a burglary in progress somewhere in the office building. Three officers arrived at the scene and began checking offices floor by floor. They hadn't found anyone yet, but they could tell something was amiss. Several of the building's doors had been duct taped open. Finally, as they approached the sixth floor office of the Democratic National Committee, they noticed something moving in the dark. In unison, they pulled their guns, yelling for whoever was there to put their hands up. Five men in suits emerged from the darkness with their hands over their heads. As the police officers arrested the intruders, they had no way of knowing that they had just stumbled upon the biggest political scandal in American history. Welcome to Political Scandals, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, in the last episode of our series, we'll examine the collapse of President Richard Nixon's illegal operation to spy on his opponent in the 1972 presidential election. We'll also get into how the reverberations of this massive cover-up led to jail time for his cabinet members and the first ever presidential resignation. As we wind down this whirlwind of scandals, Richard and I wanted to take the time to share a few thoughts and express what this podcast has meant to us. You know, Political Scandals has been one of our favorite podcasts at Parcast. We learned a lot about scandals and characters from history that shocked and sometimes amused us. When we first heard we were going to be doing a show about political scandals, we were sure this was a show that would never end. But we did know from the very get-go that this was just the top 54 scandals leading up to the 2020 election. We both really appreciate the hard work of the writers, the producers, and the production team. And personally for me, Kate, it's been a particular pleasure and privilege to work with you. I have loved working together. It has meant so much to me. And we also want to take a moment to thank you all, the listeners. Without you, none of this would be possible. And we hope you all are staying safe and well. Now that we've got all the pleasantries out of the way, we can get into the scandal all other scandals are compared to. Coming up, we'll explore Nixon's network of espionage. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. 
The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On January 20th, 1969, Richard M. Nixon was sworn in as the 37th President of the United States. In his inaugural address, he heralded a bold new era of transparency, accountability, and diplomacy. He told America, I have taken an oath in the presence of God and my countrymen to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. To that oath, I now add this sacred commitment. I shall consecrate my office, my energies, and all the wisdom I can summon to the cause of peace among nations. Every word of it was a lie. Even with this grand, sweeping rhetoric, Nixon's first day as president wouldn't be nearly as notable as his last. Just five years after his inspiring inaugural address, President Nixon resigned over his role in the Watergate scandal. Though Watergate forced his resignation, Nixon's downfall arguably started on June 13, 1971. On that day, the New York Times began publishing the Pentagon Papers, a classified Defense Department report. It proved several presidential administrations had lied to the American public about the nation's involvement in Vietnam. The leaked secret report covered the years 1945 to 1967, meaning the document didn't actually cover the period in which Nixon had been in office. However, that didn't stop President Nixon from becoming profoundly paranoid. Because the leak had occurred while he was president, Nixon was convinced that his presidency was under attack. In his mind, it was evidence of a huge radical left-wing plot to undermine him. Even more importantly, Nixon was terrified that his own Vietnam secrets would be leaked. Although Nixon kept his promise to the American people to reduce American troop numbers in Vietnam, he was nonetheless expanding the war in a geographic sense he secretly and very illegally sanctioned bombing in Laos and Cambodia. National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger had urged Nixon to bomb Cambodia, telling the president it was essential to stop the flow of communist troops into Vietnam. And since Nixon did not have Congress's permission to bomb Cambodia, the missions were covert. The Nixon administration's first move was to try and stop the Times from publishing any more of the defense report. But the Times refused, and litigation ensued. Litigation that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And on June 30th, 1971, in the case of the United States versus the New York Times Company, the Supreme Court ultimately sided against the president. Just hours after the Supreme Court decision, in a meeting with Kissinger and White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman, 
Nixon asked for advice. He needed to know how to respond to the continued release of the Pentagon Papers. In what would soon become a pattern of outlandish and illegal ideas, Haldeman suggested that Nixon blackmail his predecessor, President Johnson, into publicly disputing the papers. Haldeman believed that the Brookings Institution, a nonprofit institute that studied government policy, was the source of the Pentagon Papers' leak. He also believed that Brookings was in possession of a report detailing the Johnson administration's covert and illegal activities in Vietnam. As it turns out, there was no such report. Yet in a harbinger of events to come, that didn't stop the administration from forging ahead. It planned a series of highly illegal and completely moronic operations to discredit their political opponents. Nixon immediately seized upon the blackmail idea, urging Haldeman to implement the Houston Plan. The proposed security operation, written by White House aide Tom Houston, outlined plans for illegal surveillance and domestic break-ins of supposed radical leftist terrorists. But now, instead of terrorists, Nixon wanted to use the plan against a former president. Ever the pragmatist, Kissinger suggested that the administration just ask for the file from Brookings. President Nixon, however, refused to back down, saying, I want it implemented on a thievery basis. God damn it, get in and get those files. Blow the safe and get it. From there, the plan quickly devolved from burglary to arson. Another presidential aide unbelievably suggested that Nixon operatives firebomb the headquarters of Brookings. Theoretically, while firefighters fought the blaze, White House operatives could run in and grab the files. It seemed that even Nixon's top-level advisors were succumbing to the president's unhinged paranoia. But thankfully, the preposterous plan was ultimately abandoned. Nonetheless, Nixon simply couldn't let sleeping dogs lie. In June of 1971, strategic analyst Daniel Ellsberg publicly admitted his role in releasing the document to the press. Naturally, he became the president's new target. Ellsberg worked for the RAND Corporation, a global policy think tank, and had contributed research to the Pentagon Papers. He was disturbed by what he discovered. In his opinion, the Vietnam War was not the civil war it had been presented as, but rather a war of foreign aggression, American aggression. On July 24th, Nixon met with two advisors, John Ehrlichman and Eagle Crow, to find a way to discredit Ellsberg, or at the very least, embarrass him. Crow set up shop in room 16 in the basement of the executive office building. There, he enlisted G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, two former CIA employees, as his assistants. Though their official team name was the White House Special Investigations Unit, they became much more well-known as the Plumbers, since their main goal was to stop any and all leaks. In their misguided and unnecessarily elaborate scheme to discredit Ellsberg, Liddy and Hunt flew to Los Angeles a month later on August 25th. They cased Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Hunt then contacted his former CIA colleague, Bernard Barker, 
who brought on two others to perform the break-in. The three men broke into the psychiatrist's office on September 3rd, with Liddy and Hunt serving as lookouts. After finding Daniel Ellsberg's patient file, they quickly discovered that it contained little to no damaging information. Crestfallen, they simply left the open file on the floor and got out as quickly as they'd entered. In a meeting after the hilariously inept mission, John Ehrlichman updated Nixon on the situation, saying, We had one little operation. It's been aborted out in Los Angeles, which I think is better that you don't know about. As the Pentagon Papers controversy died down, Nixon's paranoia shifted from leaks to the upcoming presidential election. The Committee for the Re-Election of the President, or CRP, had ostensibly been formed to help fundraise for the president's re-election campaign. Behind the scenes, though, the committee had much shadier intentions. In January of 1972, Hunt and Liddy were transferred from the Special Investigations Unit to the CRP. They were to utilize their questionable espionage skills against Nixon's Democratic opponents. Liddy quickly came up with an elaborate plan to gather intelligence on the Democratic Party. His scheme, codenamed Operation Gemstone, involved forgery, wiretapping, and burglaries to gather information about prominent Democrats' financial status and sexual proclivities. Far from being unofficial and unsanctioned, these illegal plans were approved by Attorney General John Mitchell. The plan was put into action on May 28, 1972. While Democratic staffers were out of the office for Memorial Day, operatives working for Liddy were busy breaking into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters. Located within the seemingly secure Watergate complex in Washington, D.C., the headquarters were surrounded by a hotel, apartments, and offices along the Potomac River. Once the Republican operatives had gained entry, bypassing security guards and locked doors, they bugged the phones of the DNC chairman and the state Democratic chairman. The next day, Liddy reported to Deputy Director of the CRP, Jeb Magruder, that the covert operation had been only partially successful since one of the wiretaps had failed. But it seemed like an easy fix. Liddy could simply organize another break-in to retap the DNC's phone. This time, all would go smoothly. Little did he know that this seemingly simple crime would eventually crumble Nixon's entire administration. Coming up, Nixon operatives are caught red-handed, leading to the most elaborate political cover-up in American history. Hello, listeners. It's Richard from Parcast Network. We all know that when it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, 
or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the story. G. Gordon Liddy, an advisor to Nixon's committee to re-elect the president, needed dirt on Nixon's Democratic rivals. The only problem was, during his previous break-in at the Democratic National Committee's headquarters, the bugging devices his operatives had placed in staffers' telephones didn't work. To Liddy, it seemed like no problem at all to break in again. After all, his team had done it before and not gotten caught. So on June 16, 1972, in room 723 at the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge across the street from Watergate, two of Liddy's operatives staked out the DNC's office. In the small motel room, James McCord, the CRP's chief security officer, readied listening equipment and surveillance cameras. As he watched the DNC office, it seemed as if the Democratic staffers would never leave. But finally, at around midnight, the very last DNC worker went home, turning off the lights behind him. Also in the Watergate office complex that evening were G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt. They each had their own walkie-talkie directing the break-in from a safe distance. Meanwhile, a 24-year-old Watergate security guard was just starting his midnight to 7 a.m. shift. Normally, his job was mind-numbingly tedious, but tonight's shift would be one for the history books. At around 12.30 a.m., while making his normal rounds, the security guard discovered that a parking garage door had been tampered with. A piece of duct tape had been placed over the lock. Thinking little of it, he removed the tape and continued on his rounds. In reality, that duct tape had been placed by James McCord to prevent the door from locking. The guard had no idea that a break-in was occurring upstairs at the DNC offices at that very moment. Meanwhile, McCord and his crew began carefully placing listening devices and rifling through papers in the DNC headquarters. At 1.47 a.m., the security guard circled back to the parking garage as he continued making his rounds. That's when he noticed something was wrong. The door had duct tape on it again. This time, he immediately called the police to report a burglary. Three plainclothes police officers happened to be the closest to the scene that night. They arrived at the Watergate complex in an unmarked car without sirens. The lookouts had no way of knowing they were the police. As the officers cased the building, they found more doors that had been duct taped open. When the trail eventually wound its way to DNC offices, they kicked down the door and pulled out their revolvers. The police turned the lights on and shouted for the suspects to put their hands in the air. Ten hands in blue surgical gloves immediately shot up. The five intruders were oddly all wearing business suits. One officer later said of the scene, I don't think I've ever locked up another burglar that was dressed in a suit and tie and in middle age. On the intruders' persons and in their Watergate hotel rooms were bugging devices, rolls of film, tear gas pens, thousands of dollars in consecutively numbered $100 bills, and address books with the name 
Howard Hunt. The five burglars gave fake names and refused to speak further. It would be several days before the crime became linked to the Nixon administration. The following day, Liddy approached the new attorney general, Richard Kleindienst, at Burning Tree Golf Course. He urged Kleindienst to release McCord before he could be linked to Nixon's re-election committee. Although Kleindienst ultimately rejected the request, he did not make any effort to stop Liddy's attempted cover-up. It turned out Liddy was too late. When the Associated Press reported that McCord was connected to the CRP, John Mitchell, now serving as Nixon's campaign manager, put out a press statement distancing the CRP from the Watergate break-in. He stated, We want to emphasize that this man and the other people involved were not operating either on our behalf or with our consent. I am surprised and dismayed at these reports. On June 19th, Liddy admitted to White House counsel John Dean that the break-in was his operation, that he'd been under pressure from the CRP leadership for compromising information on Democrats. After speaking with Liddy, Dean informed White House advisor John Ehrlichman and White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman of the CRP's involvement. That evening, Dean met with John Mitchell and Deputy Director of the CRP, Jeb Magruder, to discuss ways to cover up the committee's involvement with the Watergate crime. After the meeting, Magruder called his office to have his Operation Gemstone files destroyed. While Magruder was busy destroying records, Nixon was doing the complete opposite, creating them with every conversation he had. Since FDR, every president had recorded important White House conversations on tape. Nixon's system was the first to be voice-activated, which meant nearly all chats in the Oval Office were recorded. Nixon had the new system installed because he was paranoid that the press and other politicians would misrepresent him. June 20th was the first recorded instance of Nixon discussing Watergate. That morning, Haldeman and Nixon spoke of the controversy, but the conversation was lost to history after the tape was recorded over. And although many have their suspicions, Nixon had not had any direct or demonstrable involvement with the DNC espionage prior to this meeting. A few days later, the Washington Post was the first newspaper to report that Howard Hunt's name had been discovered at the Watergate crime scene and that Hunt was directly connected to the White House. No one knew at the time that Bob Woodward, the author of the story, had gotten his information from a secret FBI source codenamed Deep Throat. Deep Throat's true identity would not be revealed until many years later as Mark Felt, deputy director of the FBI. At the time, the FBI was conducting its own simultaneous investigation into Watergate and as information emerged, Felt grew more and more frustrated by what he discovered. Felt believed that the Nixon administration's intelligence efforts were inappropriate, especially when used for spying on political rivals. And knowing he would likely be obstructed by an attorney general sympathetic to Nixon, his only choice was to become an informant. President Nixon wouldn't become fully entrenched in the crime until June 23rd, three days later. 
In another meeting with Haldeman, the White House chief of staff suggested the president put pressure on the FBI to stop their investigation. Haldeman felt that the bureau was getting too close to connecting Watergate to the White House. He mentioned there was a direct money trail from the CRP to many of the burglars. In response, Nixon told Haldeman to lie to the FBI and say the CRP funds had been intended for a covert CIA mission. Nixon then insisted that Haldeman tell the FBI to not go further into this case, period. To stay the hell out of this business. Though President Nixon would not publicly speak about Watergate for over a month, his team would. The week of the break-in, White House press secretary described the incident as a third-rate burglary attempt and said the White House had no knowledge of the situation. Meanwhile, across the country in Newport Beach, California, another unbelievable controversy had coalesced. John Mitchell's wife, Martha, was vacationing in California when she discovered that James McCord, a man she knew worked closely with her husband at the CRP, had taken part in the Watergate break-in. As she was calling a reporter friend on June 22nd to report on her discovery, the call suddenly cut out. A security guard that Mitchell had hired to keep an eye on his wife had yanked the phone out of the wall. Martha Mitchell was not heard from until several days later when an investigative reporter found her at a country club in Rye, New York. The reporter said Martha looked beaten, with black and blue marks all up her arms. In press interviews, Martha Mitchell said she was held captive in her California hotel room. When she tried to escape, several men attacked her and Nixon's personal doctor sedated her. Far from making headlines, however, Mitchell's salacious story was relegated to the human interest and gossip pages of the newspapers. Nixon officials claimed that Mitchell had a drinking problem and could not be trusted. Her story was largely dismissed at the time, but it is now believed that Mitchell was indeed kidnapped in an effort to keep her quiet. As more connections emerged between the burglary and the CRP, Nixon and his associate strategy shifted from denial to placing full blame on the CRP and specifically G. Gordon Liddy. On June 28th, Liddy was fired from the CRP for refusing to cooperate with the FBI's investigation. The ever-loyal Liddy was more than happy to be the scapegoat due to his undying and profoundly misguided allegiance to Nixon. He was keeping his mouth shut so the bigger fish at the CRP were safe, temporarily. Indeed, the CRP's direct connection to Watergate would be revealed to the public on August 1st. The Washington Post ran a story reporting that a $25,000 check that had been earmarked for the Nixon re-election campaign had ended up in one of the Watergate burglars' bank accounts. By this point, the office of the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia had already convened a grand jury to hear evidence on Watergate. On August 16th, Magruder gave perjured testimony saying no one in the CRP had known of Liddy's actions. Even more scandalous than the perjury itself, though, was the fact that Magruder had rehearsed his false account with Nixon's White House counsel, John Dean, 
who would soon have his fingerprints all over the cover-up. On August 30th, Nixon announced that Dean had conducted an extensive investigation. He concluded that no one from the White House had been involved. In reality, no such investigation was ever conducted. On September 15, 1971, Liddy, Hunt, McCord, and the other four Watergate burglars were indicted by the District of Columbia Grand Jury. They would now anxiously await trial. Meanwhile, the Washington Post kept churning out stories about Nixon's White House. Bob Woodward and fellow reporter Carl Bernstein were doggedly investigating the Watergate scandal, cultivating sources within the government in order to bring the truth to light. Soon, they would hit pay dirt. An article they published on September 29th alleged that former Attorney General Mitchell had overseen a secret slush fund to finance anti-Democrat intelligence gathering. In October, the Post reported the FBI's conclusion that the Watergate break-in was directly connected to spy efforts on the part of Nixon's campaign. Then they reported that the CRP had also been involved in additional and successful dirty tricks against Democratic presidential candidates. For example, several incriminating letters had been forged on Democratic presidential hopeful Edmund Muskie's letterhead. These ended up tarnishing his public image and costing him the nomination. With the 1972 presidential election fast approaching, the question was, would the American people hold the president accountable for the crimes committed by members of his administration? And as each day passed, it seemed like more and more incriminating details were revealed about Nixon's White House. At some point, the dam had to break. It turns out the breaking point would come sooner than anyone could have imagined. Coming up, the Watergate investigation turns all eyes on President Nixon. Now back to the story. In the months leading up to the 1972 presidential election, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post published a series of reports that pinned several crimes, including the Watergate break-in, on the Nixon administration. It seemed like the biggest scandal in a generation. But despite the deluge of sensational reports, most Americans believed the president when he said Watergate was a minor crime that it wasn't connected to his White House. In fact, at the time of the 1972 presidential election, Nixon had over a 60% approval rating. The result of the November 7th election was hardly a surprise. Nixon defeated Democrat George McGovern in a landslide. He won every single state besides Massachusetts, achieving the widest popular vote margin in American history. No one had any doubt that Nixon would win re-election, which makes the entire Watergate operation even more bizarre. Ultimately, Nixon and his colleagues' unwarranted paranoia about his political prospects was what brought them all down. And despite Nixon's best efforts, the cover-up of the CRP's crimes wouldn't stay hidden for long. Everything would fall apart for the president in 1973. On January 8th, 1973, the five Watergate intruders, plus Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, were finally put on trial. 
by January 30th, all but two suspects had pleaded guilty. The men did not have to testify if they pleaded guilty. Judge John Sirica worried, though, that the plaintiffs were protecting the real masterminds behind the crime. At the conclusion of the trial, Sirica warned the Watergate criminals that they would receive extremely long sentences if they refused to cooperate with the ongoing investigations. Knowing the men were hiding something, Sirica called for a Senate investigation into Watergate. The Democratic-controlled Senate listened and on February 7th established the Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, also known as the Irvin Committee. In light of this, the pressure was mounting on the Nixon administration, especially John Dean, the mastermind of the cover-up. Dean immediately met with Nixon in the Oval Office to get the president up to speed and explain their most recent setback. Howard Hunt was now blackmailing the administration, threatening to reveal his link to the CRP and Nixon White House if he didn't receive $135,000. The way Dean explained it to Nixon was that they had two problems. One, we're being blackmailed. Two, people are going to start perjuring themselves very quickly. Overwhelmed, Dean went on to say, we have a cancer close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. Later that day, Mitchell approved a $75,000 payment to Hunt's lawyer, allegedly to cover his legal expenses. But it wasn't Hunt that the CRP had to worry about after all. It was McCord. The Watergate burglar was terrified of going to jail and broke his silence. In a secret letter to Judge Sirica, McCord accused the Nixon administration of orchestrating a massive cover-up. Judge Sirica made the letter public at the Watergate sentencing hearing on March 23rd, reading the entire document aloud to shocked witnesses. Then he handed down the harshest sentences permitted by law to all of the Watergate intruders, 20 to 35 years respectively. McCord, however, got his sentence delayed, a reward, it seemed, for the letter. This was the moment the Watergate cover-up completely and utterly imploded. After the sentences were handed down, the CRP Deputy Director Jeb Magruder panicked. He told Dean he planned to confess to the grand jury to secure an immunity deal. Seeing the writing on the wall, Dean then beat Magruder to the punch and started cooperating with Watergate prosecutors himself on April 6, 1973. To make matters worse, on April 9th, the New York Times reported that McCord, in his testimony to the grand jury, stated that the Watergate burglars had received money directly from the CRP after the break-in. The next day, the Washington Post confirmed the story adding that the payments were explicitly in exchange for the burglar's silence. If there was a cancer close to the presidency, then August 30th was the day of the surgery. That day bore witness to a cascade of oustings. White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman, White House Domestic Affairs Counsel John Ehrlichman, and Attorney General Richard Kleindienst all resigned. White House counsel John Dean was fired. 
And that evening, President Nixon gave his first official public address on Watergate. In his speech, he said, I will not place blame on subordinates, on people whose zeal exceeded their judgment and who may have done wrong in a cause they deeply believed to be right. Despite Nixon's pledge, he was doing just that, placing blame on his staff and proclaiming his innocence. Nixon got rid of his advisors right on time. Shortly after, on May 2nd, the New York Times reported that Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, and Mitchell had all taken part in the Watergate cover-up and that these former presidential advisors would likely be indicted. The public would get front-row seats to the Watergate drama just two weeks later on May 17, 1973, the first day of public hearings by the Irvin Committee. The hearings were broadcast coast to coast, and most Americans tuned in. In fact, over 85% of the U.S. watched a portion of the public testimony. The same day, Nixon's new Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, appointed former U.S. Solicitor General Archibald Cox to the position of Watergate Special Prosecutor. He would be in charge of the executive branch's investigation, and Cox made it clear he would have complete independence from President Nixon. On June 25th, Dean testified in front of the Irvin Committee, saying he discussed the cover-up at least 35 times with Nixon. As each day of the hearings passed, things were looking more and more grim for Nixon. The biggest blow to the president would come on July 16th, when Alexander Butterfield, Nixon's former aide, revealed the existence of Nixon's elaborate taping system in the Oval Office. Needless to say, the Senate Committee and Special Prosecutor Cox wanted their hands on those tapes immediately. The recordings could finally answer Senator Howard Baker's infamous question from the hearing, what did the president know and when did he know it? That question would not be answered quickly, however. Nixon refused to hand over the tapes, citing presidential privilege. It would take months of court battles before a decision on the Nixon recordings would be made. In the meantime, Nixon doggedly maintained he was innocent. In his second Watergate address on August 15, 1973, Nixon argued that the hearings were a political smear job. He claimed, It has become clear that both the hearings themselves and some of the commentaries on them have become increasingly absorbed in an effort to implicate the president personally in the illegal activities that took place. It was hard to believe he was innocent when everyone around the president seemed guilty. The atmosphere of chaos devolved even further when in a completely unrelated scandal, Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned on October 10, 1973. Agnew had been accused of income tax evasion and bribery which reflected poorly on Nixon regardless. The president was then pressed to select Gerald Ford, a Michigan congressman, as Agnew's successor. Despite the cascade of resignations within his cabinet, not to mention Nixon's increasingly obvious involvement, throughout October, Nixon and his associates tried to convince Special Prosecutor Cox to drop his subpoena of the White House tapes. To his credit, Cox refused, which made Nixon even more upset. 
On October 20th, in what became known as the Saturday Night Massacre, Nixon demanded that Attorney General Richardson fire Cox. Rather than obey the order, Richardson resigned. The second in line, the Deputy Attorney General, followed suit and also resigned in protest. That left Solicitor General Robert Bork, the acting Attorney General. Unlike his colleagues, though, he was more than happy to follow Nixon's orders. The president's impetuous actions had almost immediate consequences, however, as Cox's firing proved to be a political disaster for the Nixon administration. Politicians from both parties agreed that it made the president look guilty. Nixon wouldn't publicly address these concerns until November 17th. In a televised address from Walt Disney World of all places, Nixon once again asserted his innocence, infamously declaring, I am not a crook. But even if he wasn't a crook, his administration's behavior was awfully suspicious. A mid-November Harris poll found that 83% of Americans had a negative opinion on Nixon's handling of Watergate. And that opinion only got worse on November 21st when White House Watergate counsel revealed to Watergate prosecutors that there was an 18-and-a-half-minute gap in one of the tapes they had requested. Days later, Nixon's secretary claimed she accidentally recorded over the tape. It would take nearly four more months, but on March 1st, the Watergate 7, which included John Mitchell, Bob Haldeman, and John Ehrlichman, were indicted by a grand jury. President Nixon was named an unindicted co-conspirator. Since he was president, Nixon could not be indicted, but the new special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, wanted to make sure everyone knew Nixon was implicated. President Nixon was clearly feeling the pressure. Finally, he caved, partially at least, and released 1,200 edited transcripts of the White House tapes on April 30th. But what Nixon and his associates thought would prove his innocence ended up backfiring, as Americans were shocked by Nixon's foul language and pettiness. Every curse word in the transcript had been replaced by expletive deleted. The expression littered the documents, becoming a national punchline in the process. Nixon's release of the transcripts was too little too late for the Democratic-led House of Representatives. On May 9, 1974, the House Judiciary Committee opened impeachment proceedings against Nixon. Meanwhile, the fight over the physical White House tapes finally reached the highest court in the land. The Supreme Court ruled that Nixon must hand over all 64 tapes to Special Prosecutor Jaworski in an 8-0 decision. That unanimous decision forced Nixon's hand, and the end was nigh. Congress was nearly unanimous on Nixon's guilt as well. On July 30th, the House Judiciary Committee recommended three articles of impeachment for Nixon, misuse of power, obstruction of justice, and contempt of Congress. The committee sent the articles to the floor of the House for a vote. But that vote never came. The impeachment vote was halted because Republican congressmen believed they could talk Nixon into resigning. Their argument for resignation only became stronger on August 5th, 
when the White House released transcripts from three Oval Office conversations on June 23, 1972. One of these conversations, in which Nixon demanded the FBI stop its investigation into the Watergate break-in, became known as the smoking gun. Two days later, Republican Senators Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott, along with House Minority Leader John Rhodes, spoke to Nixon. All three urged him to resign, saying he simply did not have the votes to survive impeachment. The very next day on August 8, 1974, in a nationally televised speech, the president announced he would be resigning. A tired-looking Nixon declared, I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interest of America first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. On August 9th, Nixon signed his official letter of resignation and walked out to the presidential helicopter Marine One waiting on the South Lawn with his family. As he stepped onto the helicopter, Nixon flashed a smile and gave his signature salute, arms overhead, fingers in a V for victory. However, as the only president to ever resign, it was anything but. He was leaving cloaked in shame. Plus, now that Nixon wasn't president, he could be indicted for his part in the Watergate cover-up. But Nixon was almost immediately rescued by his vice president, Gerald Ford, who'd been sworn in upon Nixon's resignation. Just a month later, on September 8th, Ford gave Nixon a full presidential pardon. Still, other Watergate collaborators were not so lucky. G. Gordon Liddy spent over four years in prison. John Mitchell, John Ehrlichman, and Bob Haldeman all spent around 18 months in federal penitentiaries. Oddly, the mastermind of the cover-up, John Dean, only spent four months in prison. In total, Watergate resulted in 69 indictments with 48 convictions. It would take years to untangle the web of espionage, cover-ups, and pure incompetence orchestrated by the Nixon administration. And despite the massive number of people involved and indictments handed down in the Watergate cover-up, most are still livid that Nixon himself was never charged. President Nixon's cover-up will always be remembered as the height of American political corruption. In fact, Almost every scandal preceding it has been given the suffix gate to link it to the greatest political scandal in U.S. history, Watergate. Thanks for listening to this season of Political Scandals. We've truly enjoyed sharing these stories with you. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, 
with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard again. Searching for your new favorite show? Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.